Welcome to the Sitcom Archive Deep Dive Overdrive, or Saddle for short. We are back. We are back with a vengeance with a new series to deep dive from the 1970s. And this time we are on Faulty Towers. Now then, yes, we are indeed. Faulty Towers it is, and I'm quite pretty excited to be getting stuck into it now. We are indeed. I am your co-host, Alison Barton-Simmons. Oh yeah, I'm Eggs Benedict. Hello. <laughs> so this series is Faulty Towers, and we'll be looking at a different episode of Faulty Towers, which ran on the BBC, 75 to 79, across 12 short episodes. That's all there is of Faulty Towers, sadly. But like last series, you can listen along with us. Uh, you can watch the original episode. It's all over the place. Being Faulty Towers is one of the most popular sitcoms ever. What is it on Britbox? This one, or is it on Netflix? Um, I've watched it on the BBC iPlayer. It's it's all there on the iPlayer to watch. Oh, cool. Okay, and which is great and easy. Just like last season as well, we are embedding the episode from Daily Motion that some naughty person uploaded onto our own website. So <laughs> uh, you can watch the episode on our website and then listen to the podcast on the same page on our website if, if you'd like to do that. But just you know, watch along and listen along with us and and join in the fun and send us messages about what we've missed and little tidbits and get involved, basically. Yeah, anything that you can think of, just just let us know. Just let us know because we, um, we'd love to hear from um, people that are listening along with us and watching along with us. This first episode of Faulty Towers was in September 1975. And mm. it, it's we were saying last week, weren't we, that it, it feels like a, a series that was around for so much longer than it actually was. Because of the the gap between the two series, and because it's just been it's just everywhere, isn't it? You can you've everyone everyone knows the, everyone knows Forty Towers, don't they? Yeah, I mean, as we said last week, it's been redone so many times in so many different countries. It's just an institution. I think it is. It's part of the 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 makeup of the of of the UK. I think, isn't it? And John Cleese pension fund, basically, yes. is what it is. Indeed. And you mentioned in that this was on in September 75. I think in the episode we see him filling in a pools coupon from 74, which must have been when it was filmed. Ah, right. Okay. And I just before we... I haven't got a game this week. We, we will bring back your Les Trousers and we will bring back Brucey, I think, in this series. Yes, please. But um, this week I just wanted to point out a few parallels or shared connections between Faulty Towers and The Good Life. Right. That's a good place to start, isn't it? I like that. Yeah. As you can see, I'm bereft to let the good life go. I keep bringing it up every episode. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the good life. Um, so firstly, we didn't mention last week, but John Howard Davis is the director of the show, and he also directed yep. and produced The Good Life. Oh, see, I like that. That's a good link. It is. Um, and and if, if you think about it, the first episode of The Good Life was on in 75 also, April, mm. April the 4th, 75. And then this yeah. was on September the 9th, 75. And as we said just before, it was filmed in 74. I like to imagine John Howard Davis driving from, oh, it wasn't Torquay, was it? It was somewhere in Gloucestershire or something, was it? Buckinghamshire. Was it in, not in Buckinghamshire? So driving between Buckinghamshire and Surbiton, but not Surbiton. But not Surbiton, so Surbiton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just driving to, from all these fictional places, which I know the real, but fictional um, TV places yeah he's basically having to source a branch for basil to hit a car in one place and then source a goat to take up the road in another place god he must have been so busy that man yeah so there's there, there you go obviously we mentioned last week that that Prue scales was in marriage lines with richard Breyer. so yeah but the other interesting thing particularly about this first episode that we're going to deep dive today is that terence Connolly. Mm. do you know who that is that that name rings. I've seen that name this week. 
he is the guy in this episode who desperately wants a gin and lemon, oh, an orange squash, yes. and a scotch and water. Please. Yes, please. Do you recognise him from anything else? I, I did. Re- do you know what? I recognise his face, but I couldn't. I couldn't place him, and I didn't find out. I didn't. I didn't sort of Google him. Well, on, who is he? I'll give you a clue. Uh, oh shit! I've forgotten the name of the episode. What was it called? Suit yourself from the Good Life. Right. Yeah. Is that where they where they have the suits made of green? Yeah. They wear the suits when they go down and and um, interrupt. Yes. Um, the meeting about the new boss. Yeah, and the three candidates were Jerry and yes. Mr. Snetterton. Snetterton. And, and Donald Dalby, the dull guy. Was he Dalby? Yeah, he was Dalby. <gasps> Sat there with his wife, who was presumably drinking an orange squash while he had his scotch Blimey, and water. Yeah, see, it was such a small world, I think, in, in 1970s sitcoms, really, weren't it? Well, so much so that Cleese reused him again in 79 in a different episode of this as another character. Really? He's in, oh, he's in wow. Waldorf Salad, a later episode that we'll come to. So there now, you go. Considering that there was only a few episodes, sort of 12, if you were a massive fan of Faulty Towers, you'd reckon that. I'm sure you'd spot that, that that's the shouty man who yeah. wanted the scotch. Possibly. Okay. I think the worst example of reusing an actor in the same universe, maybe not the same show, is when they did the Friends spin-off, Joey. Yeah. And they had a recurring character who was played by the same guy who played Eddie, who moved in with, with Chandler. Oh, no! You know, when Joey moved out in Friends? Yeah. They had Eddie as, as I think it was like his, or somebody's brother. He was a recurring character. And I was like, why the fuck is Eddie in it? And why is he now not a nutter? Because he was and a total nutter, Eddie. wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't like oh, it when wow. they do that, really. But I don't. I suppose you can get away with it in Faulty Tales when they're just guests. You know, two mm. or three lines. Well, in fact, it's one line in this for for Don for for Terence Connolly. It's just repeating the same line the while same he tries line. to get yeah. his drinks. <laughs> yeah. In vain. So there you go. There's the parallels. A few little connections between the Good Life and Faulty Towers. I promise I will try and leave the Good Life in the past and not keep harking back to it. But I thought <laughs> that was go. interesting. Let it go, Ben. I will. I'll try. <laughs> with every episode we start at the the sign the faulty tower sign the infamous faulty tower sign at the front of the hotel and this being the first episode the only sort of thing that's that's happening with the sign is that the s is sort of falling off at, at the end which does give us a bit of insight into the the state of mind of the hotel in general i think once we get inside and obviously this is this was this became like um a signature thing for Faulty Towers that the the sign outside was fiddled about with and it was by the, the newspaper boy, wasn't it? That that he's we find out that he's the one that's fiddling about with all the letters and then does a runner. I don't know if we ever do find that out or it's just law that people think that. Is it? Or maybe Cleese revealed we, it. I don't know if it's ever actually point. revealed. Oh, oh okay. no you're right. You no, sorry, I stand corrected. You do see him do it in one episode, you're right. So he's so he's doing it all along. But in yeah, so this the, the opening episode, it's just the S. The S is just hanging off a little bit. We're inside of the hotel in the reception and it it's all quite calm at the at the start. It's leading you into like with a with a with a false sense of security that this is just uh, every like every other normal hotel. I 
I can, this is a really weird thing to say, but I can smell the hotel when I see them can opening you? credits. I can smell it. I know what that hotel smells like. I hesitate to ask what it smells like. I know that, that yeah, that's a re- sort of like a, it's like a, a musty, um, burnt toast smell. Oh, lingering smells of breakfast. Breakfast and, and, and must, I think, is what I can, is what I can smell when I see yeah. them opening scenes. Basil is is in need of preparing a bill for it for a couple that are leaving, um, and they didn't get their alarm call apparently. So it's all getting a bit. It all gets very flustered very quickly, I think, doesn't it? It does, but I quite like the fact that they start off with a really strong joke almost immediately with um, yes with Manuel when he's coming out and he sends too much butter on those trays. It's brilliant. Such a good setup. Yeah, Manuel, it's too much butter. On those trays. Okay. There is too much butter on those trays. No, 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 senor. What? Not, not on those trays. No, sir. Uno, dos, tres. <laughs> they obviously, as, a, as you know, a very strong comedic background. He knows start with start with a, a corker of a joke, you know. And there's an yes. immediate exposition, isn't there, about how you're wondering why is this guy even working in a hotel when he can't speak English? And then... Mm-hmm. He's basically he's cheap, and and I also read uh, I didn't mention last week, but I also read that apparently there were loads of Europeans employed in and around London in the mid seventies in the same way that poles were lambasted in the last sort ah, of right, decade okay. or so mm-hmm. um, to save on costs. I mean, it's much like now, but often they didn't speak English, so you get apparently lots of Europeans, particularly Spaniards, working. Mm. I mean, London's always full of um, different ethnicities anyway, but apparently it was a yeah. really big thing at that time. Ah. So that's why he was written in. Hmm. Okay. Um, Basil had told Sybil as well that he could speak the language, so it was all fine to have to have Manuel yeah. from um, from Barcelona to come and work with them. Um, but yeah, Basil, there is a, a it's lost in translation, isn't it? It really is um, with the uno dos tres um, joke. But it, that it really made me laugh. I think seeing it sort of quite fresh, that joke really tickled me because. You can when you've seen it before, you can see it coming a mile off. But I think when you've not seen it for a long time or you've never seen it before, it is such a good. It's such a strong a good job joke to start with. It stood the test of time as well. The introduction to to Sybil, I think, in this opening scene, I'm already. Um, it's already grating on me. It really is. Don't like the it, Sybil do you? character. I don't like her. She's your Tom like Good. Her. Oh, when she's 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 just there saying, "What's the matter?" and it. It made me laugh that he went, nothing, dear, I'm just dealing with it, meaning Manuel, which I thought, he, he just almost like swats her away. Like, just keep your fucking nose out, sorry. And that's how I feel about her. Through, I, I, I do feel at this early stage that a lot of these issues wouldn't happen if Sybil just kept her nose out. Yeah, she's immediately set up as this incessant nag, isn't she? Oh, And a pain, geez, in, yeah. pain in Basil's arse. Yeah. But you also see, you also see he's quite quickly he's terrified of her so like a little bit yes. later on without getting ahead of ourselves he wants five minutes doesn't he to put his music on and grab a piece of toast and he hears her coming and he pushes it away and the panic he's so the scared panic of when her. he throws it into the bureau almost yeah back in reception miss gatsby and miss tibbs who who we find out are like long-term residents aren't they at the hotel before they, they move into nelson L- mandela house yeah <laughs> before yeah before they move into a different show 
randomly. Um, they come down the stairs. They are spinsters in the late 70s. And there's, there's, there's quite a bit of internet discussion around this couple being a couple. Um, really? It's like a like a hidden couple, yeah. Where there's no signs of that, is there? That these no, there's not. Um, but there's there's there is discussion that they are um, just an elderly lesbian couple. I think the majors having it away with both of them. Do you? At the same time. Well, that's a different dynamic, isn't it? Mm. He's reading out the cricket scores while giving oh. them one from behind. Right. Okay. <sighs> Sorry, I'm lowering the tone. Carry so, on. Sybil, Sybil's back again, mithering about getting this picture hung up on the wall. This is this is the the sort of one of the focal focal points of the the episode. It's that this picture needs to be hung on the wall. But then she just keeps coming back in and saying, "Have you done the menu? Have you have you hung the picture?" And he's he's literally he's like just striding between these two things that he needs to do. Yeah. When she's sort of insistent that one is more important than the other. And he's also trying to serve breakfast. Ev- at the same time, he's in the, he's in the breakfast room and you know giving yes. giving the major his papers, which have arrived late. Oh, yeah, he's the poor guy's. Uh, I'm I'm beginning to come around to what you said last week already that mm. even though he is a bit of an arse, as we see in every yeah. episode, perhaps he wouldn't be so bad if he was just given a moment's peace and quiet. You know? Yeah, just to think, just have a have a moment to think. Um, so the couple that didn't get the alarm call, which is Basil's fault by all the sort of sideway glances, I assumed it was Basil's fault. He stops hanging the picture and then he runs back over to sort out the bill. And she even asks him in front of the customers, why did you not do it, Basil? And then he has this like massive explosion of, because I forgot. I just forgot. Yeah. And he, I just feel like he's doing his best. Um. But she, yeah, she's all she's always there to point out what he's what he's not quite done properly. I am from Barcelona. Next, we're in the dining room, and he's he's delivering the the papers that have just been dropped off by the cheeky paper boy, and he gives the major his paper, and they discuss they discuss the strikes. Um, it sort of sets the tone for like the political tone of of the major and and Basil. Yeah, they're talking about strikes and. Basil's insistent that we should just be doing stuff for fellow for fellow men, which which just feels a bit alien to what we know about Basil so far. In this dining room scene as well, there's lots of people that are that are needing of Basil's attention. So there's there's one guy that only wants to stay till Sunday, so he's like shouting out to to, to Basil while Basil's busy busy doing something else, um, and he he gets quite snappy at this stage. Basil, he's um he's a little bit on his high horse, I think. Just trying to keep everybody. All he wants to do is, like you say, is go and have this piece of toast, sit in his back office with music on. And yeah, put a bit of Brahms on. Brahms third racket, as he describes racket. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he's just he just keeps getting interrupted by pesky customers. And back at the bureau, like you said, he hears he hears Sybil come in and he throws his his breakfast into the bureau. So he doesn't get told off. He just doesn't want to get... He wants a quiet life, does Basil. Yeah. He doesn't want to get done. But when she comes in, she's already got something else to complain about. She's complaining about the cost of the advert that he's placed in Country Life for 40 quid. Yeah. Which, which again, you get in this exposition that he's a snob, that he basically wants to attract a better clientele to the hotel. She doesn't see why. And I'm on her side with that because yeah. it's just a load of nonsense. It pays the bills. Yeah. And he's 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 wasted forty quid, which is a lot of money in those days, of course, putting this advert in, and he's got one booking from it. And she points out, yeah. sort of um, passive aggressively, that it won't even pay for the advert. And then to illustrate sort of Sybil's point, 
Danny Brown turns up, um, and he's a bit of a what we what we assume to be a bit of a Cockney wide boy with his leather jacket on and his hello, I've got a room. Yeah, he's he's it's you can tell that that as, as an actor, this guy doesn't actually speak like that, but he's he, he sort of puts on the the Cockney wide boy. Did you did you get um Lenny Godper vibes off him? Yes, I did a little bit with the way that he was almost like he was sort of. Using that as a as inspiration for the way that he spoke, yes, yeah. he did. Although I suppose it would have predated mm. porridge, would it? I oh, know it was been about the same and time. The hair, the hair, the as hair, well. definitely. You had that sort of seventies blow dried, yeah, bouffant. I'm sure you'll mention his jacket later, which I thought was. Great. I will. <laughs> I'd love that jacket. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Basil tries to put him off. No, like as if he'd not got any rooms. But Sybil's like, yeah, just let him in. What are you doing? We we need we need this guy to um to to pay the bills. Um, but he's embarrassed, he isn't he, said, at this point, because of the fact that he assumes that Mr. Brown's a troglodyte. He doesn't think he'll be even yes. be able to write. And then it turns out he's, yeah. he speaks fluent Spanish and starts conversing yeah. with Manuel. <laughs> he has a bit of a chat with Manuel. and But that it really does. It pisses Basil off that because yeah. he says, like, oh, well, why don't you tell Manuel since though he understands everything that you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> Again, he hears Sybil and races off. Shouting, and she she shouts, "Don't forget the menu!" So she's still pecking him about about getting the menu done, and he manically starts trying to put the menu together. In the dining room again, we've got Mister Brown who is shouting after after Basil, waiter, and he wants he wants the wine list, and there's a there's a a bit of an altercation with was it with a grapefruit that ends up flying across the dining room? I thought it was just like a bread roll. Was it a grapefruit? It, was it? Because he, he orders the grapefruit. I didn't get it right, but whatever it was, it was, okay. it was the way that Basil, the room. Basil saying, throw it away, and then miming, throwing something away. And then is the way Andrew Sachs does it without even looking. He's sort of looking just in one direction it. and just throws it. It lands on that table. I thought that was, that still <laughs> makes me laugh, that scene. And then we have um, what becomes the first in, in many instances of, of Manuel getting a, getting a bit of a beating from Basil. Yeah. Um, he gets taken into the into the kitchen. We should have a violence tab in this one, do you think? I think, yeah, you can chalk that one up, definitely. Yeah. There's a ring and there's somebody There's somebody in reception, but Sybil shouts, there's somebody in reception. Again, it really irritated me that if you if you can shout that there's somebody in reception, just go and see what it is. Well, in a short while, we see that even when he pops out to get Lord Melbury's cases, she then takes over and finishes it off. And he's like, yes. why do you ask, you know, you can see him thinking, why do you ask me to do it? And then you do it yourself. Yeah, she's just an infuriated, isn't she? I just, I do feel that a lot of his his manic um, status and just the fact that he's sort of always on the ceiling. I understand. I get it. Yeah, but did you think that Lord Melbury turns up almost looking like the archetypal cad? <laughs> of course he does, with his little moustache and yeah. his, and he's he's very neat and he's got he's got his navy overcoat on and he's carrying yeah, a he's, bowler hat. <laughs> he looks like an MP. He looks like a, like an archetypal MP. Or yeah, me. I mean, you would definitely see Nigel Havers playing him now. If the, of course, you remade. would. Yeah, absolutely, you would. And I can imagine that 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 is what draws Basil in straight away because he he looks at people and thinks, yeah, you're a you're the real deal. How how far away do you think uh, Terry Thomas was from landing that part? <laughs> oh, it's a very te- it's a Terry Thomas role that isn't it? Yeah. Terry Thomas and Nigel Havers. Yeah. Um, did you know that? That the guy who played Lord Melbury, Michael Gwynn, apparently mm. died four months after this episode aired. Oh very, no! Very young, yeah. Poor dude. Wowzers! Maybe it was that kick that Basil gives him at the end. Oh, 
Maybe it was. Oh dear. Yeah. Or maybe not. Let's hope not. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> you bastard! <laughs> the way that Basil responds to having a lord when he realizes because he's on the he's on the phone to uh, Mr. O'Reilly, the builder, initially. Mm. Yeah, foreshadowing um, next episode, isn't it? Oh, he's giving he's giving Mr. O'Reilly what for, and he's he's, he's sort of like sort of semi racist. In this call, sort of saying that we've got a pile of bricks, have you not tried to come and cement them? And then there's a mention of the potato famine. But then when he realises that Lord Melbury is a lord yeah. and the the impact that his, that his advert in country life might have had, um, he, he just tells Mr O'Reilly to go away on the phone and puts it down. Yeah. And that really made me laugh that... He, he, he then sort of turns the attention to, to Lord Melbury and he says, snivelling... Horrible arse liquor. Yeah, the sycophancy he shows to Lord Melbury oh. after he hangs up on O'Reilly. Yes, it, but it's it's the dichotomy between being obnoxious to to O'Reilly and then like yes, flick of you know, click of the fingers, and he's like he's all um. What is at one point he says natural mouth. Oh, it's really cringy, but I, <laughs> I, I love it. I love the fact how how far he will go and how quick. Yeah, that just shows. He calls him your sort of honor manic. And, and yeah, yeah oh, he's maniacal yeah. in his um, toading, isn't he? To Melbourne. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So he calls for for Manuel to go and get the um, get his bags, but then ends up saying, "No, don't bother. I'll do it," and then runs outside to get the bags oh, himself. I, I don't get this thing where people. I mean, I, I'm assuming this isn't just TV land. I'm, I'm assuming it used to happen and probably still does. I don't stay in nice mm. hotels because I'm a pauper. Basil wouldn't want me in his hotel. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not posh enough. But why do people go up the steps, dump their bags outside a hotel where presumably they could be nipped by anyone and then go in? Mm. I mean, why didn't you just bring him in with him? Maybe that was a thing in... Must have been. In, in, in sort of like earlier decades that you, that you did, you, was it expected that someone would bring your cases in? Was that was so, that part of the deal? I think it's a class thing for? again. It's like oh, it's beneath me. I'll come. I'll, you know, I'll get a paid monkey to do it. Mm. Like Manuel. I don't like it though. I remember at my wedding where at the hotel which you were at as well, and when we pulled up in the car, they took my cases off me. They took my bag off me. And it it really, it flummoxed me. I didn't like it. It Mm. And it was all part of the experience of being at this hotel. You pull up, we take your cases, we put them on one of them brass carriages and we push it into the hotel. And it's like, no, I'll just carry it. And maybe it is a class thing. It felt alien. It felt really strange. Did did either you or Johnny put a nice crisp £10 note in the guy's... Oh God! In the guy's that's lapel. What it feels like it feels like the expectation of I don't know what to do in those situations. Yeah. Is that what was supposed to happen? Was I supposed to crush a, a crisp ten pound note into his hand? Here you go. Just for carrying Buy yourself a drink, steps. Sam. That type of thing. Oh, it's weird. I don't like things like that. No. I don't like when I don't know what the expectation is. I'd rather just do it myself than I know mm. that it's all all right. But that's just me. No, I agree with you completely. Lord Melbury wants to deposit some cases of valuables. Um, yes. So obviously Basil thinks, oh geez, this this is this is someone that I need to um, stay on the on the best side of and impress. So he wants to take the, the cases and um, put them into the safe. Uh, Basil and Manuel end up fighting over over the cases. I don't know if you noticed in this scene as well that, that before they go upstairs, Lord Melbury sort of like sneaking around a little bit in in the reception oh, was rather he? than just following Basil up the stairs. He seems to like almost like he's casing the joint a little bit. Oh uh, like no, I didn't pick up on that. 
peeping. Yeah. Mm, okay. So straight away I'm thinking, ooh, he's this a wrong a bit dodgier. He's a wrong gun. Oh, I know. So after getting settled in, Lord Melbury heads into the dining room for, for lunch and the table which Basil refers to as being Lord Melbury's table. Yeah. But I don't think Lord Melbury's even been before. There's a family sat in the window, in like a bay window seat, and he, he turfs this family away into a into a, a different seats across the um, across the dining room, which results in Lord Melbury falling on the floor because Basil is so keen to pull his chair out and be polite. But as Lord Lord Melbury sits down, Basil just removes the chair and he falls on the floor. Yeah, bit of classic slapstick there, really, wasn't it? I liked it, yeah. Basil's very apologetic and offers Lord Melbury free dinner, but Lord Melbury's already got plans to go out and indeed needs a cheque cashing. So this was this was like was this like an old way of getting money? I think it probably was a done, for, done. Yeah, probably a done thing you, to just say, oh, you I give need a cheque and it cash, gets, yeah. It gets cashed at the bank and then you get two hundred pounds out and or whatever amount. Yeah. So he wants two hundred pounds, he fills a cheque in. And asks if if Basil can can head down to the bank to cash this for him later on that evening. I think Basil offered a hundred. Did he? I can't remember now. Did yes. Basil offer a hundred? He said, "Well, is a hundred enough for one hundred, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty? He said, "Well, it's a weekend. Yeah, two hundred. And you can see by his face that he's mortified at being asked for two hundred yeah. sovs. But at the same time, he's like, "Oh, oh I, I'm so happy. <laughs> of course, yeah. and I'm so that line. I'm so happy made me laugh quite a bit." He goes higher and higher up, doesn't he? He gets more and more manic. Yeah. Well, I can understand it because the equivalent, like we've done when in the first series where we where we worked out the equivalent amount of money, this is yeah. equivalent to about £1,000 in today's money is what he's asking okay. for. I mean, that's a lot right. of money for a weekend, isn't it? For a night out, yeah. You get a good weekend yeah, for £1,000. Absolutely. Uh, Sybil sort of takes it upon herself to tell Basil off for moving the family and, and for Lord, Lord Melbury falling over as well. Mm. Um, and 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 sort of points out that Lord Melbury's cases are very tatty, so yeah, she's sort yeah, of drawing she's on the ball. drawing the conclusion that mm, is that really how a lord would would sort of be kitted out? Whereas Basil says, of course, this is what all the upper classes are like. They don't care. They don't need to have the best looking accessories. Of course, he's got a tatty case. He's he's almost caught out in this uh, this scene by Sybil writing the check and he pushes it away like he did with his toast yeah. earlier. And then yeah. to cover it, he gives her a peck on the cheek and she says, what are you doing? What well, are you doing? I'm just giving you a kiss to it. Well, don't. <laughs> That's another telltale sign of a, a very stilted marriage, isn't it? Yeah. I think the single beds side by side is also an indication later on in the series. Basil sends Polly into into the town to yeah. get the, um, the check cashed. And we see a, it's a high street shot. It's an outdoors yeah, high street. Yeah, I knew you'd love this bit. On location shot. I liked it. And um, so as she, she's sort of like wandering down the street, she sees Mr. Brown, who stayed at the hotel, um, the guy that Basil thought was some Cockney wide boy. Um, and she sees Mr. Brown in the car. But then she, she, this feels quite an alien concept now. She just gets in the car with him. She just gets in the back of the car. Yeah, it wouldn't happen now, would it? You'd be, no. on, you'd be on your toes, pretty girl about town, and he just mm. beckons her into the car. Yeah, I know. What but you she mean. gets in, and he's obviously whispering something to her. Um, and we see Lord Melbury coming out of the jewellers in the high street. So the plot thickens at this point. And at this point, Alison, did you notice that mm. there was like almost the faulty towers equivalent of the brass tone happened? Yes, 
There was yes, like, I did. There was like a swoop, wasn't it? As he came out, there was a, a swoop. Swooping. But, oh. but instead of a, a brass tone, it was like an off kilter piano chord. It's like this isn't right because there's a there's a minor chord <sighs> where it was previously a sort of it was like a, a funked up version of the theme tune, wasn't it? Played on piano rather than yep. rather than on fiddle. But as soon as mm. Melbury comes out, you get a swoop, and then you get a minor chord. It's like oh, aye, aye. Watch out for this. I, I was thinking, look at this, everybody. This is look, something bad's happening. I was just worried about your blood pressure. I know that you don't like this mild peril. I watched it in bed, so it was all right. I was laid down. Good. Okay. <laughs> we can relax. I could relax. Absolutely. Uh, back in the hotel, we're back in the reception. Basil's putting the picture up, or trying to, Yeah. when the phone rings. And... Basil's busy shouting, can somebody get the phone? And then Manuel, oh, Manuel comes flying out the kitchen, so excited about the prospect of answering the hotel phone. And Basil shouts, not you. (laughs) Yeah. Then Basil picks up the phone, the usual phone at reception that he thinks he's ringing. So he's he's put the picture down. He was mid putting the picture up, puts the picture down, heads over to answer the phone, and it's the wrong phone. And then the other phone that's on the reception, he's still ringing, and then Sybil answers it, yeah. which got my back up. <laughs> just answer the phone. I don't think she's as bad in the, in the next few episodes. I think it's just set not. in the scene that she mm. she is a thorn in his side with her, her behaviour and her expectations. Mm. Polly's back from the high street, all flustered, in need of talking to, to, to Basil. She needs to speak to Mr Faulty. You get this um, a lot in, in a lot of episodes. She needs to speak to him urgently and he won't listen. Yeah. Tons and tons of time. I mean, that's the farce of it, isn't it? Absolutely. The sort of miscommunication. The Major is, is in the bar and he's having a bit of a chit-chat with, with Basil. They all sort of come down for drinks, don't they, before before the dinner, which is which is something that it still happens. It still does happen, the yeah. hotel bar. But what yeah. I like about the Major is he, he's a bit like some of... Um, Larby and Esmond's weird characters in The Good Life in that he just comes out with weird random lines like... Random chat. Did you know the female gibbon gestates for seven months? <laughs> Faulty's like, does he really? <laughs> it's like clearly like... Be, do you know, as a, as a hotelier, you must have to just put up with that kind of stuff all the time. Just people chit-chatting. Yeah. And yeah. telling you random information. I'd be awful at that. I'd be awful at being a hotelier. Yes, I don't think I'd have the patience. I don't think I'd be as, no. as impatient as Basil, but I, it, I'm not cut out for it, certainly. And that, no. And certainly when that guy comes in, one in his, um, his gin and orange, <laughs> oh, scotch and leather. So the, yeah, the family. The family were, that were turfed off Lord Melbury's table come in. Yeah. And and the the dad of the family immediately asks, is there anywhere that we shouldn't sit? Yeah. Because obviously he doesn't want to get thrown off another table. He just wants to sit down and, and he, orders, he orders his drinks and then find somewhere to sit. Lord Melbury comes in and has a dry sherry, and Basil says, "What else?" So obviously he he just he, he's got he's got Lord Melbury on a pedestal throughout this mm, episode. Yeah, he yeah. thinks that he's the bee's knees. He is the clientele that that Faulty Towers needs. He spots Lord Melbury looking through his coin collection. Does mm. Basil, which is at sort of like the back of the bar, and they're all British Empire, and 
Lord Melbury sort of suggests that he should that Basil should get these valued for the for what they're worth now, um, and because it's something that he needs to look after. It's a transparent con to the viewer, isn't it? We can see it coming, mm. but I mean, this is it. We're just we we see it coming. I think most people in the show, if you were saying it to Sybil or Polly, they'd see it coming. But Basil's so preoccupied with the the perceived class of Lord Melbury that he's willing to hand over the coins, isn't he? Absolutely, he gets drawn in with just with with you know with just patter. He gets drawn in by it because apparently Lord Melbury's going to be going having dinner with the Duke of Buckley, who works at Sotheby's, um, or he's got connections with Sotheby's, and he can take the coins with him and get them valued if Basil wants. Mm. Which Basil thinks he's like, um, uh, yeah, absolutely, he's ready to hand them over. Polly is still in desperate need of speaking to Basil, and finally pins him down to have a quick chat with him to tell him that Lord Melbury is in fact a confidence trickster mm. and that he'd seen Mr. she'd seen Mr. Brown on the high street who is actually from the CID. So he's not this Cockney wise boy. No. He's actually there to try and catch Lord Melbury. He's at the hotel for that very reason, um, which obviously Basil does not want to believe. He doesn't want to think that Mr. Brown is anybody and that Lord Melbury is a confidence trickster. I think the fact that it came from Mr. Brown makes him even less even more incredulous that this mm. this could be what how could someone as common as mr brown possibly be be telling the truth you know yeah just utter snobbery but with his leather jacket <laughs> sybil gets the cases out when she finds out this news and um they open it up and it's just got bricks in it it's, so a, what? it's a great reveal though isn't it because all the time oh. all the time basil's like i forbid you to take that case out i forbid you to open it he keeps forbidding her and she keeps just doing what she wants and then yeah. when he when she opens it puts it in front of him we don't see for about three or four seconds we just see him staring yeah. and then he just lifts up the bricks and it becomes apparent he's got bricks and then he starts smelling them he smells them and, and clanks them together, doesn't he? Just to make sure that they're not like golden bricks inside. Yeah, yeah. As if like his ol- olfactory senses is going to reveal that it's in fact not bricks, that it's it's a mirage and there's actually tons of gold bullion in there or something. He's very deflated. Um, and then the couple that did reply to the advert, the, the Morrises, Sir Richard and Lady Morris turn up. Lord Melbrick comes down the stairs and at this point, obviously, Basil is aware that Lord Melbury is in fact a confidence trickster, and he gives Basil another check to cash, which mm. Basil b- he bites it and throws it away. And the couple will just stand there looking fl- absolutely flummoxed at the behaviour of this of this hotelier. Well, initially he's just he's just um, befuddled, isn't he? He's only just got the mm. shock about the bricks, and he goes out yeah. and he doesn't really know what's going on. And I think his acting's really good in this because even halfway through his sentence. He's suddenly, he's suddenly distracted and he sort of grimaces and sort of... Do you know what yes. I mean? He's yeah. like, oh, fucking Melbury. But he's, he's just totally distracted. But then when Melbury appears, he can't keep it in, can he? As well as biting a check, he's going, you bastard! <laughs> and chasing him around the hotel. He's brilliant. The, the, I think the comic, the comic genius of, of John Cleese and the creation of the character of Basil in this particular scene, I think it's, it, it's just... You can just be in awe of it i think yeah it all comes together at that point doesn't it yeah yes yeah perfect he says to lord melbury about my priceless collection of coins um, the duke of buckley's dead <laughs> yeah. he got his head knocked off by a golf ball <laughs> how Which... are you me old mucker and start slapping him around <laughs> he his slaps face. his face <laughs> so the fact that he's, he's turned on a sixpence completely 
And he asked the he asked the couple, um, he asked the the, the Morrises, do you have you got any valuables? Do you have any bricks? <laughs> At which point, Lord Melbury legs it literally off off the off the screen. Uh, Basil shouts after him, "You bastard!" Manuel and Polly at this at this point um, step in and they trip him up, and Basil gets his his wallet off him. He gets a boot in first, idea. doesn't he? Gives a, gives a bit, bit of a good idea as well yeah, while he's down there. Like that, and he gets his um, two hundred quid back. He does. Lord and Lady Morris leave, um, and Basil chases them and asks them what they're doing, and they say, Le- "We're leaving." Obviously, they're absolutely blown away by the incompetence of of this place, and and head off. To which Basil shouts after them, you snobs, which is quite ironic. <laughs> yeah. As Lord Melbury is sort of manhandled out of the hotel by um, Mr. Brown and um, the other members of the CID, Basil wants to just give him one last punch yeah. as he's being taken down the steps, but the um, the uh, they won't let him. We head back inside the hotel. It's sort of Basil dusts himself off and, and heads back inside. And the family that had been ditched off the table are still waiting for the drinks, um, a gin and tonic, a lemon squash and a scotch and water, please. To which point Basil smashes the picture <laughs> and the yeah. episode ends. But he's he's literally grabbing the 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 guy. I keep thinking of him as Thomas Dolby. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the dad of the family. He's literally like dragging him through to the bar. Yes, it's, it's the OTTness, isn't it? It's, it's one thing having a rude hotelier; it's another having one who's literally pulling you around the hotel. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. that's you know a lot of physical comedy in Faulty Towers, and it's always very yes, well done. Is. Well, no, it's ninety-five percent very well done. We do get some yeah. some scenes which look ridiculous, which we'll see in yeah. future episodes. But in this one, spot on, I think. Yeah, and uh, Paul, the, the Polly and Manuel characters sort of stepping in. In, in that kind of like farcical sitcom way of, of stopping, yeah, they're, they're just in the right place at the right time to, to stop the, the mania that's going on. Yes, yeah, yeah. To make sure it's not a such like. a catastrophic ending yes. as it could have been. Mm. One interesting thing about this was that, as we said earlier, this came out in September 75. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird the way sitcom world works, I suppose. But unbeknownst to Cleves and Booth when they were writing this, I'm sure, and similarly unbeknownst to the writers of Rising Damp, they were writing exactly the same plot, exactly the same time, because barely three months later, in fact, less than three months later, Rising Damp transmitted pretty much the identical storyline in an episode of Rising Damp called The Perfect Gentleman. I know you've not seen Rising Damp particularly. Wow. But you know Rigsby, um, Leonard Rossiter's character? He's basically similarly taken in by an upmarket con man who comes to his door. Exactly the same thing almost broadcast within months of each other. It's crazy, eh? I wonder if something had been in the news sort of around that time, like where that had actually happened somewhere and they'd all just gone off and... Written their version of it, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe there was like a prompt, like a social prompt. There was a muse who was making them all, giving them all ideas. (laughs) Yes. A con man muse. Yeah. So there we go. That's the end of our very first um, run through of of the very first episode of series one of Faulty Towers. We mentioned, didn't we, last week that we're not going to do MVPs. No. Because it'll always be Polly. (laughs) She's the only one who's got any competence or likability. So... Instead of MVP, what we thought we'd do was we thought this 
this week and every week in the Faulty Towers run, we do a new feature called Brick a Brack Spotlight. So each week we will be taking some piece of ni- the 1970s sitcom set. So this time, obviously, it's Faulty Towers. And pick something that stands out to us as being an item that's that you could that you could pinpoint in that episode as sort of representing the time, the era, the show. Just something that stands out. So obviously we're watching it independently of each other and there's different things that stand out to both of us. So we need to yeah, so we're we're gonna pick one thing that, that sticks out that's not one of the actors. Um so it's nothing to do with the performances, it's more to do with the set pieces, the the, the set the items that are part of the, the the TV set. Yeah, set decoration that is just representative of the time, isn't it? Yeah, that mm. you, d- you wouldn't see now and it gives us a warm sense of nostalgia to look at it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What have you got this week? I've chosen this week. Um, I had, a, I had a, a list of, of different things that I spotted. I'm just going to go for something quite quite generic this week and that is the, the rotary phone on the reception desk because it's not something that you would see any longer you don't really see telephones landlines in people's homes anymore so no, true. the 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 rotary telephone for me it's it's like a good exhibit of of that era mm. and something that i've got a connection with as a kid as well um, and I, I chose it because it, it obviously it's different now with like my kids have no idea what a rotary phone is when you when you talk about a phone that you that you'd pick the handle up and put to your ear and you had to I didn't just push buttons, you had to turn the dial on it. It's mad um, really, it isn't it? About, that they even it took designed about three it weeks that way. to make a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Really an odd an odd concept really. Um I used to, one summer I, I, I phoned the Everton club line, you know, like the O eight nine eight numbers that charge you a fortune. When 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 the internet didn't exist when I was a kid and I wanted like yeah. the latest transfer news. The news. Three times a day I was phoning this 0898 number to get the latest transfer news and they always keep you on five minutes going late coming up later in and you're like so at, at the end of the summer I had, there was like a two hundred pound bill that I had to pay. I bet there was. And um, I, not only does it baffle me that no one caught me doing this in all this time. Mm. It baffles me particularly that no one heard me constantly change, constantly using the rotary dial on the thing. Absolutely, because it it wasn't a silent process, was it? No. It was so loud when you when you turned the the dial on it, um, and the the ring, I don't, the ring of a rotary telephone as well was like nothing I've ever heard. It's like a noise that would wake the dead hmm. when a rotary telephone goes off. Um, quite shrill, and it, it, I've just got that. Image, it's like a like a, a, a an audio image in my head, if that makes sense. Of this, of this, fo- of every time the phone rang, I don't know how we all didn't just have like mild coronaries because it was it would wake the dead. I don't, I, I don't know about you, but my my phone now it's never ever on ring ever. It's not even on vibrate. Very rarely, I, yeah. If same. I see it, it's because it's in front of me. If I see it ringing, so the idea of having a phone in the house now that could ring at any time just fills me with absolute. Peril. My parents had one right next to the bed as well. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, that's given me mild palpitations. The thought of that, yeah, yeah it's just it, so it was definitely of a time, and to hear it, it's quite nostalgic hearing it. But it just made me remember that it's not something I would ever want in my house. I just remembered as well that because my nan was—you've met my nan, have you? I can't remember. Did yeah. you ever meet my nan? Yeah, you would have done. Yeah, I think so. She was deaf, and in her mm. in her flat, not only did she have a like a treble volume um, oh ring God. it also mm. she had it hooked up to this fucking siren light that went off yeah like lighting up the room 
It was like yeah. it was almost like the air raid was coming or something when it. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't like to have lived upstairs from her. Bloody hell! Oh dear. What did you pick for yours then? What was your sort of set piece that you identified? So I picked uh, the barometer that's on the wall in the lobby just by the stairs. Yes. When I was a kid, my my nana and granddad had one of those, which they swore worked, but it always seemed to be predicting the same weather to me. Yes. Yeah. They would they would swear blind that it was working and that yeah this was what was coming and I was like this thing's been stuck on windy for seven years but anyway when when they died <laughs> it ended up in our house so it was in my mum and dad's house and I'm pretty sure they oh, still wow. got it mm. I'm pretty sure and it, I, I may be wrong and my my dad might listen to this episode and correct me but I think it I think it might be mine now but I've just never been able to get it over here to New Zealand because of the size of oh. it I'm pretty sure he said I could have it and then we worked out. And he, I think he said he'd leave it to me or something. Nice. A broken barometer. <laughs> oh, do you think in, in New Zealand it'd show four seasons in one day? Oh, very good. Very good. It would It would have its work cut out in New Zealand, I'll tell you that. Just spinning round. Yeah. <laughs> That'd wake the fucker up. It's been 100 years since it's moved. It would be like, what the fuck's this? Oh, where have you brought me? Yeah, so I did like that. And it looked very much like my parents slash my barometer. Mm. Yeah. Well, that brings us that brings us to the end of brick. What brick brack? Hang on a minute. Let me say that again. No, I'm not. I'm not brick editing it. It's staying like this. What's it called? Brick a brick a brack. Brick a brack spotlight. Yeah, brick a brack. So spotlight. that brings us neatly to the end of brick a brack. Oh bloody hell! I'm not editing it. It's staying like this. Out. No. So that brings us neatly to the end of brick a brack spotlight for the first week. Very neatly. <laughs> Neatly, like a pair of pinking shears. Consummately, it's professionally. Cut, <laughs> cut so neatly. <laughs> so let's let's revert to type and do an old favourite and have a little trip over to Al's Fashion Corner. Well, well it's, it's time, time to take a little trip, trip to, to the, the place that long ago was hip. It's Fashion Corner. It's Fashion Corner. It's Fashion Corner. Fashion Corner. Lots to talk about in this episode. I feel a bit bereft now, like you said before, that there's no Margot to, to chat about. However, I do feel I can... Yeah, I've, I've, I've got Sybil as a as a replacement, I think. In this episode, we see her in... It's a beautiful plum purple coloured suit jacket and skirt with a white blouse underneath with like a neckerchief over the top. Very sort of, very sort of late 70s looking. Mm. And... She, I didn't realise how sort of petite she actually was. Yeah. She looked, she looked really tiny in in, in what she was wearing, um, but the colour was very very sort of like um, without obviously seventies prints were were still a big deal around that time, but the block colours towards the end of the seventies, it it felt like it was heading in that direction. Very neat, very very sober, very professional looking but still looking really well put together. She's obviously, she obviously knows style and she knows how she wants to look. She's very frilly and though, isn't she? She's very frilly. She is very frilly. The neckerchief's very frilly. I do want to make a point of mentioning Sybil's hair as well. I know that's mm. not fashion, but Sybil's it hair... I think it cut, falls I, under the I category. do have hair envy of, of Sybil because she's got this sweeping grey streak at the front. Yeah. In, in what looks like it's like an updo with like a French twist but she's got quite wavy hair but with this very slick grey streak at the front which I also rock with with jet black hair but I I always admire women that have got some kind of um, grey on show I always think there's a there's a bit of a, a power and 
bit of action. Action woman behind someone that's got a grey streak. See, I've always thought of her hair as beehive, but I don't suppose it is beehive really, is it? I think it's it, less a beehive. It's more like a like a twist at the back. But I know what you mean. It's quite high on top, isn't it? It's got mm. quite a lot of lift. Yeah, yeah. But the grey streak, I just think, yeah, she, she looks cool. She does. Basil. Um, <laughs> at this... <laughs> At this stage, because Basil obviously he's got this, this brown suit on. It's quite a sober, sober-looking brown brown suit. It's all always also for looking with that professional professional look of, of someone that owns a hotel. However, his face is so pale and his hair is so messy that he just looks like a manic smart man. He looks like he's he's, he's trying to give off vibes of knowing what he's doing with what he's wearing. His height and his gait and his face just give away the fact that he's just on the edge constantly, isn't he? He really is. Yeah. I think the one thing that stands out as, as looking a bit ropey in his attire is that tiny tie he's got. You know, the, yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be tiny, but the way he's got it, it's like an Oliver Hardy or a, or a reverse Donald Trump. Donald Trumps are always too long, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, is it to exacerbate? Is it to exacerbate his height and to sort of make him look even bigger because of Uh, the small tie? Is it it a comic? It could be like a comic um... device. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. That'd be interesting. I bet there's so many interviews with John Cleese about making a faulty tower that I bet he reveals that at some point if it's true. Mr. Brown from the CID. Obviously, we said that we would chat about him because of his um, his hello. Um, his biker jacket, which was like a black leather jacket with red and yellow stripes around yeah. the arms and around the collar, and um, that's that's something that I think I think that leather jacket is is of a time, mm. but equally as timeless because you could, you'd see that in like Topshop, I'm sure, over the over the recent decades. Did you think it looked potentially PVC-ish rather than leather? I think like a like a, a mock a mock leather. Yeah. Pleather. That's what That's they call what they it call now, it. yeah. But leather. Um, mm. I don't know. There was just something sheeny about it that made me think: Is that yeah. real leather? Perhaps it. Perhaps it wouldn't have been leather. Perhaps it would have been a, like a man-made, a man-made material. Yeah, and maybe that went in, uh, fed into Basil's. Um, yeah. A view of him as just being a, you know, a chancer. Perhaps. Perhaps. And a black polo neck. I, yeah, Mr. Brown looked cool. I think he looked really smart. Mm. And I think now that you know that he's a copper undercover, I think it's quite it's quite clear really that he's obviously trying to pitch himself so that you wouldn't think he was a copper under undercover. But I think his attire does give him away a little bit when you know a little bit more. I wanted to mention Polly in in Fashion Corner because I think she just deserves some kind of mention. But she's very muted, isn't she? Compared when you compare her to sort of Sybil, she's she's got it's a very seven nineteen seventies. Almost like a a mid-century green. She's in like a very very dark green outfit. She seems quite beige to me. There's nothing spectacular about what she's wearing at all. Is there? No. It's not very notable. Yeah. In, in fact, if, you, if you'd have asked me beforehand what what will Polly have on, I wouldn't have known. She sort of just blends into the background. But I think is that part of the character? Do you think she's not really supposed to stand out? Well, this is the first episode, but I think in most in most episodes she's wearing that Polly dress, isn't she? That blue and white. Yeah. Polly dress. The only thing in this one that caught my eye with Polly was when she was serving breakfast to Mr. Brown was she had a big collar, a big floppy yeah. collar on, which I thought yeah. was quite nice. But yeah, she was very muted. 
And I think maybe it was all about establishing Sybil and Basil's dynamic, and she was very much a bit part in this one. Yeah, just hidden in the background, really. Yeah, yeah. Apart from swooping in to stop um, Lord Melbury. Yeah. Well, this she was very nervous, I think, and she didn't want... She was finding her way into the role. So I think yeah. she grows and becomes more central to it as it goes on. But you're right, there was nothing to write home about fashion-wise, was there? With Polly. No. Mm. Says me like I'm some sort of fashion expert. <laughs> Lord Melbury had, uh, I was wanting to mention, his, his like woolen coat that he had on, which again was, was like an identifier, wasn't it? We were supposed to look at Lord Melbury and go... That's a man with class. That's a man with um, power, mm. and to hold him in high esteem because he looked like just very smart looking. Like you said before, when you see him from what he's wearing, the suit and the and the, and the long coat, you're supposed to draw from that that he's somebody. He's he's somebody of importance. You are supposed to draw that, but I just thought maybe it's because I'm, I'm new. You know, I've seen this mm. episode countless times, but I just yeah. thought he looked like an archetypal cad. Yeah, he had cad written all over him. Yeah, on first viewing though, perhaps you would you would. Yes, difficult uh, to know, isn't it, uh, when you've seen it so many times? It is. It is, yeah. isn't it? It is. I think you'd have to be quite naive to not think in a sitcom that somebody that's dressed like that is actually going to cause some bother. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. But yeah, but on first viewing, I think you're supposed to think, yeah, here's a smart man. That's it for Fashion Corner this week. So obviously that's our first episode done, um, but if you'd like to follow along with us um, and get involved and look at some of the rare videos and images that we post on our social media channels, you can follow us at Sado Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. We have a Facebook page you can find by searching Sado Podcast, and we also have a growing Facebook group that you can join and contribute to the discussion with memes or rarities that you might find yourself and want to share with our growing community. And if you also, if you do join the Facebook group, you'll get a say on what season three is going to be all about because we're going to put it to the vote. So it's worth doing if you if you're really desperate to see us deep dive porridge, rising tamp, Reggie Perrin, whatever you fancy. Subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, sado.club, where you can also get more information about the project, read our blog posts, shout us a coffee if you like, or listen to episodes if you don't do podcast apps. You can also, as we mentioned earlier, watch the original episodes we discuss on each episode notes page. You can email us if, you, um, if you're if you old school, you want to go email route, you can email us at sadopodcast.gmail.com. Send a carrier pigeon to Torquay, <laughs> which is that way. And subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we will be deep diving again, but with the second episode of the first series of Salty Towers, and it's called The Builders where there's some major misunderstanding about what building work needs to be done while the Faulties are out of town. I do recall Faulty, Basil Faulty wearing some ridiculous clothes in this one for you to have a look at. Is it golf attire? I think there's some golf attire in this one, isn't there? That's Sybil mainly, isn't it? But he's just got a ridiculous jacket on and a hat. And O'Reilly is it, O'Reilly steals the show in this one, where he's like, I do love a woman with spirit. I do, I do. <laughs> He is, he's very, yeah, he is, he's very over the top, isn't he? I'm looking forward to this one. I'm yeah. looking forward to it, Lords. So join us next week and uh, we'll we'll get stuck into the builders. Nice to have you with us. Stick with us. If you're not a big fan of Faulty, we'll be on to something else in about 10 weeks. Yeah, just enjoy it. Stay with us. Stay with us if you can. Who's not a fan of Faulty Towers, though, eh? Exactly. You need, you need your head looking up. 
<laughs> I'll see thee. See you next time. Squash and a scotch and water, please!